Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Smitty. Hey, Bernard. How are you doing? I'm good. It's been a long time since we've done this. Yes, I know. You were in episode 5. Actually, a few, two episodes back, I actually mentioned your name when we talk about Yahoo Messenger having the chance in Asia, but they lost it. And blowing chunks. Yes. And you're the guy who tried to bring a plan. Tried to help in Asia, but that didn't go anywhere. Okay, I better have this intro. We have Michael Smith Jr., currently the Chief Technology Officer of Hook, H-O-O-Q. Correct. And the reason why I got you here is because I want to talk about the over-the-top or what people call OTT video market. Correct. Or some people call on-demand video. Yeah, video on-demand, pay-per-view, OTT, that's all. Let's yes. just say it's streaming video to people. And you actually have a lot of experience in this area because you're working in two companies that have done this. Your previous company where you came on the show was with Spool Correct. and then now with Hook. Correct. All right. So I want to tell people what Hook is because everybody gets confused in this market. Yeah. Yeah. So Hook is a joint venture between Singtel, which I'm sure people have heard about, and Sony. I'm hoping people heard about them and Warner Brothers. And it's kind of the first time actually that I know of that Sony and Warner have worked together in a JV. And it's the first time they've partnered up with a telco. So it's a bunch of firsts in this thing, but it's a new way of looking at building a company because you kind of take the telco and the content guys and you get them to work together. And then they put together this joint venture in Asia-Pacific region, right? Correct. The reason is that they want to build out something like a Netflix equivalent yeah, I in think, the region. You know, for better or for worse, everybody uses the term Netflix because that's probably the global brand that everybody understands what we're talking about. But I think apart from on paper looking like that, I think we're trying to do a lot of different things. It's the idea of how do you bring the OTT paid-for market to the emerging markets? Which, by the way, no one's really doing at scale yet, right? Everyone has been working on this OTT video market. How does it actually work? So if you are in this business, so you basically get video content from a producer of content. Correct. And then you stream it across, and I guess these days it's omni-channel, whether it's yeah. on the laptop, on the mobile, or even on any device you have. How does it work? On well, I think like the very basic component is, yeah, we go out and buy content and literally got to buy it. I think a lot of people think this content is free or cheap or something, right? Like I always tell people that if you asked a user what they wanted, they want the movie that's in the movie theaters available to them on their phone for 99 cents and they want to stream it without even paying their telephone bill data plan. And that's what people want. So we all know that's kind of crazy, right? So we have to go out and buy the content. Generally, if it's in the theaters, it's not available to be bought because that's where they make the most money. And we take this thing and then with the technology, you encode it. So we turn it into something that can be streamed. And then we get people to pay for it. And in in between all this tech around it, you want to make a profit, right? Like, you know, pay back all your bills, your technology, your employees, and and put some money away in the bank. So at its core components, it's all those things. But it's really complicated in the sense of the way rights are sold for movies is 
very complex, much more than the audio market. And there's a whole bunch of windowing analogies, right? Meaning, you know, it's, it's no different. I, I like to use the example that everybody freaked out that Adele's not on Spotify with her new album. Like, oh my gosh, it's a travesty. Adele is evil. Spotify is evil. Well, I'm pretty sure Adele didn't even offer it to be sold to Spotify because she knows that if she can get you to go buy a CD, she's going to make a hell of a lot more money than streaming it on Spotify. Well, the same thing happens in the content world, right? A movie makes the most money in the cinema, and then after the cinema, you would think it can get onto online, but you know what? They might have sold it to Singtel Cable. They might have sold it to StarHub Cable, or they might have sold it to Satellite. Oh, by the way, they still sell DVDs, so it gets all carved up, and then based on this windowing, it might say that, hey, this movie can be put on a streaming service six months later. And a lot of users get mad at the streaming company for, hey, why isn't the latest Walking Dead on Hook? Well, it's not actually even able to be sold to Hook, right? It's, it's going to make money in all its various formats before it reaches streaming. So OTT guys are in this whole thing. We're now a buyer, just like the cable guy is a buyer and the satellite guy is a buyer. And we got to bid for these things and we got to try to pay what we think we can make money on them with. I mean, it'd be easy to say we could just pay top dollar for everything. And then I would turn around and say, you know, a Hook subscription costs $30 a month. And no one's going to pay for that, right? So it's quite complex, but I think a lot of people forget that it is kind of a simple formula. We have to go buy stuff, and then we have to make money on the margin for streaming it to users. And also you need the kind of technology infrastructure to actually stream it across yes. because, I mean, people in developed markets think that 5 megabit is small now. Yes. But actually 5 megabit in an emerging market is crazy. notorious. Yeah, it's like crazy good like one megabit is what a lot of us are dealing with or we're dealing with 3G because people are on their phone only I mean I think one of the constructs that's different for emerging markets is they're not sitting in front of their smart TV on by megabit line they're actually sitting with their cheap Micromax phone on 3G of course this is why we think there's a market here because how well equipped is Netflix to come into a market and focus on a mobile first lower cost subscription. So yeah, we have to pay for the technology, pay for the staff, pay for the CDNs, all these things, and then make some money there on top of it, which, is, which by the way is why most of these companies don't make money for many years, and you only really make money at really big scale. Right? Do you make money actually through the subscribers, or do you actually make money through trying to help the content to improve distribution? Uh, through subscriptions. Wow. Yeah, you don't, I mean, because we're straight up have to pay for the content and then turn around and sell it. You know, actually distributing it doesn't put any money in our pocket, right? We have to get the user to want to buy the subscription. So, for example, while well, people in the U.S., when they deal with OTT video, they're only thinking about what Warner Brothers, ABC Television, they, or HBO, all these kind of very well-known brands. Yes. But I guess in Asia, it's much more interesting because you have, a lot of people don't know that Bollywood produces more movies than Hollywood. Yeah. Which is in your previous incarnation to deal with India content. Yep. You also deal with Korean drama content. Yep. You also deal with Japanese and Chinese content from Hong Kong, Taiwan, and China. Yes. How, how does these, what I call fragmentation of local content, work? For us, we've kind of definitely said that in each market, we would have a local catalog and a Hollywood catalog, both TV and movies. We're not out there trying to play the, what I call the regional arbitrage game, something that everybody might know who Vicky is, does this, where I'll take a Korean drama and sell it in Thailand because I put Thai subtitles on it. 
We're not actually trying to do that. We're mostly focused on if you're in Thailand, we want to make sure you have great Thai content, but then we also, because of our partnerships, want to have great Hollywood content. But we're not trying to get so much into what I call the niche arbitrage market, where you have guys like Vicky and a few players like Drama Fever, you know, their entire business model is what you call content arbitrage. Buy it over there in Korea for the rights in Thailand. I think it is a model. It's definitely something to explore, but I think for what we're trying to do, you know, we're really trying to focus because you, you know, the idea that you're just everything to everybody probably isn't a very good product experience. Who are the major players in the U Asia on, with regards to the OTT space? Well, I think you have already a bunch of... Okay, so first off, you have... It's obvious that Netflix is coming to town. And I think a lot of people get really excited about this because they think it's some amazing event. But actually, if you remember, Netflix told people a few years ago that by 2016, they would be a global company. So Netflix is going to probably go everywhere. And you know, what does that mean in the marketplace? I don't think anybody knows yet because I think a lot of people think, hey, I've been VPNing over to the States to watch Netflix. And wow, they're going to turn that on in Singapore for five Singapore dollars with the same catalog. I got a bridge I can sell you. They're going to probably have a very similar price point in dollars that they have in America, and it'll probably even be a smaller catalog, because keep in mind, Netflix being in the content game, they've already sold House of Cards to the cable guy, and the cable guy owns it. He is not going to go let Netflix stream it. So there's a lot of idiosyncrasies here to how it works, but from a global perspective, it's quite obvious that Amazon and Netflix probably enter as many countries as possible. Once you get dived down from that, you have in-country players almost everywhere. So these would be, you know, in Thailand, there's Primetime, Hollywood, Indonesia's got a couple, like every country's got a couple local streamers, as I call them, but they generally don't have monster catalogs. They're more local in focus. Then you have the next level, which is the regional people. I don't really focus on China because it has its own players. Japan has its own players. Korea has its own players. But from a regional Southeast Asia perspective, there's only really us, Hook, iFlix, and lots of people saying that others are coming, right? You have Toggle in Singapore that's always talked about being regional but hasn't made it happen yet. You know, I don't think it's a winner-take-all market, just like it's not in the States. But at the same time, I don't think anybody knows yet. Like, the idea of building something for video in the emerging markets is many years in the making. For example, I know of Le TV, LETV, yes. in China. China. They're very big, and they are actually going into building their own phones. They're subsidizing yeah. the phone and pushing their content through the phones. Yes. Do you see any other Asian players doing that? I don't see any other Asian players doing it, but you see all the telcos trying to figure out how to make a play here. And time will tell us to what that means. You know, is, is there a theory that someone says, buy the hook phone and you get all this content. I mean, I'm sure someone sits in a room and thinks about that, but is that really what the user wants? I think Lay TV is even working on cars, correct me if I'm wrong. So yes. I think that's a China thing where you have this major, major scale. I don't think you'll see that in Southeast Asia, to be honest, but I think you're going to see quite a dogfight between, you know, does Netflix go downstream to get more customers? Does Amazon start shipping a video service that's not connected to Prime? Because remember, the Amazon service is largely connected to being a Prime subscriber. You can't just go buy the video service. No one really knows yet. But do we all think that, will the majority of people, fast forward five years, get most of their content from a OTT service? I think so. Is it 
monthly? Is it weekly? Is it pay-per-view? Is it bundled with your one gigabyte plan? I don't think anybody knows exactly what the consumer uptake's gonna be, which is why companies like ourselves are, are largely experimenting at, sca- at scale with a lot of models. So you have the challenge of like, in Hook's case, you have to build the original infrastructure, while you also have Sony, you have Warner Brothers who are pro- content producers. Yes. I mean, in other cases where in the US, for example, Netflix have to produce their own content in order to pull people in. They were the ones who pioneered House of Cards. Yeah. And then subsequently now they're doing all the Marvel heroes like Daredevil, Jessica Jones. But I think it's because Netflix wants to turn into being kind of like an HBO. A lot of people, I think, get confused by this Netflix content. They actually think Netflix produced it. Actually, what it is is Netflix helped produce it, but some of it's actually built by Sonar and Warner and everybody else, but Netflix is the sole exclusive buyer of it. Then what they can say is, hey, I have this Netflix content. They actually don't have a studio and they're shooting it. They're talking about building stuff like that. They're just going out to even the NBCs and the Warners and the Lionsgate and saying, the show idea you know, that we like, we're going to buy it all. You know, it's like a, what they call an output deal. And what they also say is, we're going to pay so much for it that you can't sell it to anybody else. That's actually what Netflix content is. It's not so much that they're creating it. Mm. They're, they're paying the bills for it. So th- does it mean that it's the same with like Amazon as well? Yeah, that's the same thing Amazon's doing with some of their things. I think all of them are saying that it, it becomes a pillar for them. If you... Is that content good enough and enough of it such that you will keep paying for your Amazon Prime thing or you will keep paying? You know, this is what HBO does, right? You pay every month for HBO because they output enough of their own shows that you think that $10 a month is worthwhile. I think Netflix trying to turn into that and we know it's very powerful. The question is, is how do they roll that out globally? Like, for instance, as you know, Naspers, who's quite active in the investment scene in Southeast Asia, they have a very big... Netflix-like service in South Africa, which, by the way, its most popular content is Netflix content. Well, now Netflix wants to open up in South Africa. Do they rip all that content from Naspers that Naspers is paying good money from and you only find it on Netflix? I don't think anybody knows. So the metamorphosis of all these people is, yes, they want to build something that they have that no one else has. I think all these regional guys, you know, let's include, actually, we We'd all love to be there, but are we going to go out and, and have a Hook exclusive show that we produce next year? No, we're not. But one of the things you'll see that we did is, for example, we're the only one with Ash versus the Evil Dead in Asia. In fact, it's not even on cable. So if you want to watch legally, I mean, sure you can bid toward Ash versus the Evil Dead, the only place to find it is Hook. It does really well for us. Would we do more things like that? Would people like Netflix bring that model to Southeast Asia and maybe go produce an Asian show that's only on Netflix, given the amount of money they have, it wouldn't surprise me. I thought I should just add a side note because Nesper is also the investor to Tencent, which is the owner of WeChat. I think they own, I think, about 40% before the IPO. Correct. And they also have a very big video service in China, right? It's actually not one of the ones that people talk a lot about, but it's one of the ones that makes really big money. It's a pay-per-view thing with Warner Brothers content. We have the same situation even in China where the BAT, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, where Alibaba is building its own movie studio now and also producing content too. So and I they always talk about Alibaba, like, you know, there's all this talk about Jack Ma buying Lionsgate. Yeah, they want to buy what you call output capability. And then what they can do is, you know, they'll still sell shows to other people, but they'll say, hey, these two shows are only on our service. Who knows where the content world goes? I think 
no one quite knows where you end up on this because one of the negative side effects to all this activity is content costs are dramatically rising in anticipation of very large markets. But what that means is the cost of building these services rises as well, which also erodes profit capabilities. I mean, I think everybody knows Netflix doesn't make a lot of money. They make a lot of revenue. They don't put a lot of money away, and everybody thinks that their expansion into the emerging markets is going to even erode those profits even more. But I think what Netflix is saying is, hey, look at us 10 years from now when we absolutely dominate the global streaming market and we're a studio. So they're willing to give up those things. You know, can the hooks and the iFlixes do the same thing? Yeah, I would say a lot of money's been batted around, but look at China as an example of how people do these things. It's at massive scale, right? Like Yudu Toko ended up being multi-billion dollar collapse. So at scale, these are really big numbers and everybody's kind of pushing profits off to the future. And I think the mobile networks in China is far more superior than its Wi-Fi. Yes, yes. And I think actually, but even the, the broadband networks are better than a lot of places. Like We talk a lot about the content side, the owner of the content and the business model with the OTT video market. But how about consumers? How do they acquire the access to get to the video? They download your app, they pay for subs- subscription or pay-per-view. Yeah, we only do subscription right now, but and generally everybody offers what we call like free trials. So as long as you can sign up with something and, and give us a phone number, give us email, almost everybody gets like 30 days and then what we try to do is convince you to pay for it after that. And yeah, it's as simple as grabbing the app or grabbing, going to the website and you know, going to hook.tv and signing up. The other thing that you don't see, and this is one of the reasons why we're this JV with a telco, is in all of our markets that we're live in, so in, in the Philippines, this would be with Globe, in Thailand it's with AIS, in India it's with Airtel, soon we'll be in Indonesia, we have partnerships with the Singtel family of telcos. A lot of people probably don't realize that Singtel essentially owns a piece of everybody. Everybody in a lot of markets, not just Southeast Asia, uh, parts of Africa, parts of the Middle East. And a lot of these telcos want to offer something on their network or in their service. So if you look at like AIS, who's now rolling out fiber in Bangkok, when you get AIS fiber, they hand you a set-top box. And on the set-top box is access to content. One of those things is hook. And you just automatically get it, and that sweetens the the deal, so to speak, from other fiber providers. So does the business model change depending on the country? Because like in Asia, we have developed markets like Singapore, Seoul, and Tokyo. You have developing like Jakarta, uh, Bangkok, in Manila, yep. and then you also have frontier markets like you know your Bangalore, Karachis, and yeah. Yangon. How do th- these models for consumers to pay for their content work in these? I think that in general, markets? you know, everybody implements credit cards, but we know that that's not the big thing. But to give you a sense of, yeah, are there differences in markets for sure? Like if you look at India, Paytm is huge. It's this virtual wallet thing, and it's it's taken over India. So. Yeah, we offer Paytm in India. We don't have that anywhere else because it's not available anywhere else. If you go over to another country, we'll just say, hey, can you pay with your phone bill? You can, right? So 
The business model doesn't change, but the ability to pay or methods of payments is country by country. The pricing is also country by country because content rights cost differently in different countries. Again, it's a work in progress. I think we're trying to see at scale what takes off. But we do know that it's different than a normal developed market like Singapore where maybe you're using in-app purchase because you have a credit card or you're just using your credit card. We know that in Indonesia, I think the entire credit card penetration is sub 10% or something, sub 8%. Yeah, it's crazy, right? So you, you couldn't go to Indonesia and say, I'm going to make a business on in-app purchase and with my iPhone because you have to have a credit card. So the business model is the same, but the different methods. But I would say that the thing that a lot of people don't see is the things where the telco essentially bundles us and you don't see it so that you you walk in and you buy a plan from globe you know this isn't the exact plan but for example you buy a six megabyte line or something from globe and they offer you a chromecast stick for free and three months of hook hook still being paid for by them as a sweetener and then we get revenue through that so these what you call these bundle hard bundles are a big Thing that you can do in Asia that you don't see in other parts of the world. What are the challenges in building an OTT video company in Asia Pacific? Do you have to start with a lot of funding like the way how Hope does it or you know in your previous role where they start off more ground-based like Spool for example? Yeah, I mean it definitely takes money to buy content. You can't walk up to a studio and say I'm a startup, can you give me a bunch of content for free and if I make it I'll pay you. Content is actually structured over years and it actually is kind of a debt relationship there's these mgs like minimum guarantees so that you you can start off with hey i'll buy this content and as i ramp usage i'll pay you so you definitely need money i don't think any i don't think any ott guy can do a bootstrap scenario i think and that's why everybody says like why you guys have to raise so much money to give you a sense of hook hook actually started with a hundred million bucks i think no one talks about that in asia but i don't know any startup in the region that kicked off with a hundred million dollars and that's because one we've gotten big quick we're, we're going to be in four countries and we have quite a big catalog we got quite a big client footprint we're already doing above the line marketing, TVCs. It takes money. Now, does it take that much money? I don't think iFlix has raised that kind of money. Spool definitely didn't raise that kind of money. But if you're gonna buy content and if you're gonna put in all the stuff for DRM and all the security things, you need some money to kick off. You can't bootstrap an OTT company. But at the same time, there are methods for surviving. I think Spool is a great example of this. They were bootstrapped by their founders who put in money, but you know, as everybody knows, they haven't publicly raised any money and they're doing quite well. So there's different models for doing this, but you know, they're a very niche service, right? I think if you look at a hook or something or Netflix, who's going to go into many, many countries, it takes cash, right? Some pretty serious ducats. I'm going to zoom down a bit because you are in the technology and product management end of the OTT market. I know you have written a lot of articles complaining about iOS and Android. What is the problem? I think the, the, the problem, and I think Apple's critically aware of it in the region. Actually, if you talk to the Apple evangelists, they, they know what I'm talking about. But if you go and you look at what I can do with Android, with Android, Google's gentle. Google says, please implement Google Payments, you know, their in-app purchase which I don't know if everybody realizes they take 30% of that. But Google says, if you want to add PayPal and if you want to add a voucher or you want to add Paytm, as long as the user has choices, 
We'll let that go. And if you look at anybody's app in the emerging markets with Android, you might see a screen that has like 15 payment methods. It's crazy. But that actually works. As messy as it is, it works. In Apple land, I mean, I'm holding an iPhone. God knows I love them. Apple says you can only use in-app purchase if your things are virtual. Now, remember, everybody gets confused by this. Yes, with your Uber app, you can use your credit card. Uber's not selling something through the app. But if I go and want to sell a gaming token or a movie or whatever you want that's virtual, Apple absolutely insists that the only payment method you can put in your thing is Apple in-app purchase. On paper, I still don't have a problem with that. There's, there's a 30% cut. It's easy to do. The big problem is there's only one way you can make in-app purchase work in Apple land, which is with a credit card. Even and, and, and people will say, well, no, you can go do the gift cards. I can't do subscription services on gift cards. And in fact, it doesn't work. If you actually try to go use an Apple payment SKU for a subscription, which is a can thing in Apple, and then the user tries to put in a gift card, you know, the ones you have your friends buy, that actually won't work for a subscription. So let me ask this question. When... Apple in Asia Pacific is only with the higher incomes or middle high end. So these are the, most likely the people with credit cards. Yeah. And the rest of them is Android land because Android yeah. always tells about this 80% market share. But do you actually see the same behavior in content purchasing is that the content purchases tend to come from Apple ecosystem or yes. Android ecosystem? So we with Hook don't do Apple payments right now, but we did it with Spool and we saw, yeah, you saw way more people pay with Apple than Android. That's that's a known entity. But, also in video content. You know, but, the, but the other thing that Google does is... In many markets, Google has the official Google payment hooked to a telco system so that you can make a Google payment with your Singtel phone bill. So it's like a carrier that. billing. It's man. carrier billing, but it's integrated into Google. And with Android, of course, I can implement my own carrier billing. With Apple, not only can I not implement my own carrier billing, they don't do any carrier billing. So now, obviously, Apple's a massively profitable company, and I'm not saying they're losing. But I'm always wondering, if you look out over years to come, that if Apple misses the non-credit card market completely, the ecosystem, in my mind, suffers a little bit. Meaning, like, you know, do people not buy the phones? I'm not sure that they don't buy the phones, but the people like us building a system in emerging markets don't see... A business there, right? It's difficult now. But they do make compromises for markets like China. Well, they exactly, and, and supposedly they've implemented carrier billing for one carrier in Germany. I think it's a test bed. So, I I believe these things might change. I think the other thing that I've always wondered if Apple would do to kind of throw a wrench into everybody's ecosystem is just lower their cut. Like, imagine if Apple said, "Hey guys, we're so rich." We're not going to take 30 anymore. We're going to take 25, right? You know, then a lot of us might just turn on in-app payments because, you know, don't remember the margins here. Like, let's just pretend that I charge you $4 a month for Hook and 30% Apple takes right away. That's like a buck 20. Then now I have to take whatever is left from that and still pay everybody else. It's a really big cut, right? Remember, it's every month. Like, if I put you on a recurring subscription, Apple takes a buck 20 every month, right? Who knows where this goes, but it's been a problem for everybody who's not China, because the China people hack around this, but for the rest of us who 
have to use the normal ecosystem in the emerging markets, you know, in-app purchase kind of sucks, right? Even though it's a great mechanism. So they're not going to do anything until that there is demand or they... You know, they will never answer anything. I mean, even if you go meet with Apple Singapore under like NDA and talk to them and you tell them this problem, they acknowledge it. Do they give you a roadmap or... No, Apple doesn't give you a roadmap for even when their next phone's coming out. But I've always wondered, does this affect them? Is this, you know, and, and I guess at the moment... It doesn't seem like it affects them. I'm just curious down the road, does it? What about like the CDN services? I mean, it's not easy to actually stream. So actually, uh, actually, I think you'd be surprised. Akamai is everywhere. I mean, not every CDN is everywhere. And if you look at CloudFront, they're only where they have CloudFront in points. But actually, you'd be surprised. CloudFront's in the Philippines already. It's coming to Indonesia. It's, it's, I don't think the CDN's the problem anymore. I think four or five years ago, it was... I think a couple years ago, you couldn't do it all with Amazon. Actually, in the region, Spool was using Amazon and served all countries with it, even if the nodes weren't local. Akamai is literally in every telco in Asia, like and even in the Indonesias. So I don't think that's a problem anymore. I, I, think, I came across a CDN service that deals with streaming sports video, for yeah. example, from the Premier League, because they need to watch it in real time. Yeah. And they are specifically to that captive to... Yeah. The owner of that, which is Singtel, okay. Yeah. Just in case for the whole of Southeast Asia, Singtel owns the Premier League content, which <laughs> yes, is the is. most profitable spots in Asia. Yes. So yes. But I think you know, to be frank, if I said if I rank my problems or technical things to wrap my head around, acquiring users, keeping them, that whole marketing acquisition funnel, and payments much more difficult than streaming infrastructure. I mean, Akamai essentially works, right? And actually so does CloudFront. So that that problem is less of an issue these days. Payment methods are much more painful. Okay. So while we talk a lot about the VOD market, I'm sure you have been watching what's going on in the Southeast Asia sure. ecosystem. So there's a lot of search of funding. I like to say that at the moment, it's actually China and India dominating most of the volume and dominating most of the valuation. What do you see in Southeast Asia lately? From a funding perspective? No, from a startup funding perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I, so I, to me, like, if, if people can't stand back and just be amazed at the growth in Southeast Asia, then you never were aware of how little it was before. I mean, so I've been in Asia since like 99. Hong Kong, a little bit in China, then Thailand, and then Singapore. Like, it's startup fever, right? Are, is it frothy? I think a little bit. To be frank, I think it actually is a little bit frothy. I think you just see... But at the same time, like, is that a bad thing? I don't think it's a bad thing. I think people... If you think you can build a startup, go do it, right? If you can win, great. I'm wondering now with the meltdown in China over the last couple days... If we're not seeing a little bit of the canary in the coal mine as far as global appetite for risk, and if you're raising funds right now, I bet you got just a little bit more jittery over the last couple of days. And I would think whether you're a startup or a fund, you probably wished you had raised last week, right? Because are we headed towards Armageddon? No. Are we looking a little bit of a rough 2016? I wonder sometimes, right? I because I think that like the private market has to start kind of going public to get some exits, but if the markets start getting bad, people aren't going to go public. I'm wondering if this whole cycle comes to Southeast Asia or not, or are we so 
young in our infancy that there's enough funds, you know, there's four or five series that got five A guys in town that have all, I think, mostly closed their money. So, and if they've mostly closed their money, I mean, Bernard, you know the investor game better than I do. If you've closed your fund over the last month or year, you get to run for three or four years, right? Well, there's like, still the Indian market, which is still overheated because yes. the Japanese is there, the Chinese are there, yes. so they see that as the emerging market to grow. So there's still some leeway for Southeast Asian market. Yeah, because I think people that get tired of India and China can start looking here, right? So I think Southeast Asia's got a long ways to go. I think the markets can be bigger. There's no doubt about it. We'll get some bumps on the roadmap, but you know, I'm a huge fan of the Singapore ecosystem. As you know, as a as a PR, you know, living here in Singapore with a family, you'll never hear me not praise what's possible in Singapore. And I say that with an experience living in other countries. And then you take that and juxtapose it over the work the government's done in the investment space, the amount of incubators and accelerators. You know, you've got to love being in Singapore. There's no doubt about it. Now, it doesn't mean Thailand's not more exciting or you should be in Jakarta, but as a home base for playing all these markets, Singapore is phenomenal. So this scene is just going to keep growing. But I think, are we going to see things that IPO? Are we going to see exits? I'm not sure yet, but the great thing is there's been enough founders running around making money who are pouring it back into the ecosystem that it just keeps getting better. Right? I, thought, I thought I should bring up an interesting point. I've seen a lot more Indian companies now making themselves as a Singapore registered companies in order to attract funds from the US, from other parts of the world yes. in Asia. I mean, this is this is almost yeah, like making I, Singapore like a Delaware. Yeah, uh, and, I, and I, I, I don't see that slowing down. In fact, a lot of these incubators, accelerators kind of forced on that. Like if you're an Indian startup and you want to come get funded by they actually tell you to spin up your business in Singapore, right? Mm. So seems to me that, that that trend isn't gonna slow down and I think there's a reason for all that, right? Which is it's safer. Like if I think if you look at some of these issues, there's things that Singapore creates for you that are a safety net for legal things and stuff like that that don't exist in these other countries. I think even a lot of the Thai companies are, you know, headquartered in Singapore, right? And I think if you come through JFDI or anything, I think it's a requirement of them that you're a Singapore company. So Singapore's nailed that. And, you know, I don't see that trend changing anytime soon. But I'm also wondering, as you keep building this influx of capital and you keep growing, the exit's got to kind of come too, right? Because investors want some liquidity, right? Now, you have seen some acquisitions. You don't see anything really going public. I'm, that's one thing I'm always curious to know. Like, in the, in the Southeast Asian ecosystem and startups, nothing's really gone public. Well, you know the last one I know was MOL. Payments, yeah, but they had a beating but that's after that's a really that. old Malaysian company. But right? they're a payments company. They yes. do gaming payments yeah. very well. So, because I'm trying to figure out, like, remember, to keep field, uh, feeding this ecosystem, there has to be liquidity. You've seen a lot of private stuff enter the market, and then you see the younger funds around here bring something up through Series A, then Sequoia comes around, takes it to the next level. Sequoia's going to want to exit. Now, I guess some of its acquisitions, just like you see... Twitter about zip dials and other things, but there's not a lot of these. I, I think at some point the maturity level is going to have to 
get to where the exits and the liquidity at a, at a later stage starts to get a little bit more active. Because if that doesn't happen, where's the door, right? <laughs> How does the money keep flowing through, right? Well, I guess Indonesia is sucking up most of the oxygen now because of the big market. And you see all these unicorns that are turning up now, yeah. but you still haven't seen a exit or... Yeah, I mean, who's going to buy one of these unicorns? I mean, I mean, if... If an Indonesian company starts to get to be worth billions, who comes along and pays billions for it? I don't, I mean, I'm just curious. I don't know either. But, and I'm also wondering if the markets take a little bit of a hit and you already see markdowns and unicorns, you know, is, it, is Southeast Asia immune to that because they're just not that big yet? I mean, it, time will tell, right? But, you know, the, the maturity of the ecosystem lately is pretty amazing compared to what it was just a couple of years ago, right? Hmm. I, I still remember your acquisition. When, when you were in Yahoo <laughs> doing that acquisition. We created an exit, yes. For Corporal to be acquired, that changes the landscape a while. And then now it's waiting for its next S-curve change or another big acquisition to happen. But I guess the key being acquired by Rakuten, that was another big yeah, one. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so there, I shouldn't say nothing happened, right? Mm. You see Rakuten buying stuff, SoftBank buying things. I, I just feel like there's a lot going in right now at pretty big levels. And at some point, they're at the, the exits also have to increase somewhat with the stuff mm. being injected into the system, right? Mm. Okay, so I guess we talk a lot about Southeast Asia. Here comes my last question, and you right. know the question. How do my audience find you? So you can find me on Twitter, I'm DreamPipe. I say you can find me on my blog, but I honestly have not been blogging a lot, which is kind of sad. It's nokpis.com, and that's because I'm just very anti-KPI. Everybody always asks me why I have that. That's generally where you can find me, and I should be blogging more, but I love Twitter, and I'm happy to chat with people. And I, I think, you know, that's that's where I'm at, because I think those are the places to be. And you can find me at bleongcw or at bernardleong.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Acast. You can also find us at Analyze Asia A-N-A-L-Y-S-E on Twitter we are also very active there and I know that Smitty is always cited his mo- all his articles have been cited by Business Insider at one point in time on Yahoo so if you want to know what has happened to Yahoo in Southeast Asia he's your go-to man too uh, yeah that's again that's a whole other podcast so, yeah. yeah so we should uh, Speedy, once again, thank you for coming on yeah, the show. Yeah, thank you. And I'm really glad to see the growth in your podcast and the guests you keep nailing here. So it's pretty exciting. So congrats to that. Thank you. All right.